Welcome to The Term, a podcast of the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and I'm joined as usual by Law360 Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie, especially now that you're back on the podcast after the last two episodes um, when you were out. But uh, of course, we're happy to have you to break down all the news this week. How are things with you? Good, good. I'm glad to be back. Uh, honestly, I I missed being out, especially for those Monday arguments. But you and Chris did such an amazing job. And yeah, I'm excited to jump in, though, because there's even more news this week. That's right. Monday's uh, marathon hearing in the affirmative action cases weren't the only noteworthy oral arguments. We're going to be talking uh, later on in the episode about two interesting uh, criminal cases that were argued on Tuesday. But I think the kind of surprising argument that made news was actually argued on Wednesday in kind of a relatively obscure tax case involving the Bank Secrecy Act. Now, I'm not going to you know get into exactly what the arguments were about other than to say that it made news because a trio of female protesters stood up um, you know, within a minute after the argument started in the case Bittner versus United States to denounce the Supreme Court's recent uh, ruling in Dobbs overturning Roe versus Wade, which kind of shook things up for the normally kind of low-key tax Bank Secrecy Act cases. So, Jimmy, obviously we've seen protests outside of the Supreme Court. Those are pretty regular occurrence. We've even seen protests at the justices' houses. Uh, but as you mentioned, this is super rare to see it inside the courtroom. Can you talk a little bit about what the consequences are for protesting during arguments? Well, the two examples that you just gave are legal for the most part, unless, you know, you're doing an attempted assassination attempt. Um, But actually protesting in the Supreme Court oral arguments in the courtroom itself is a violation of a federal law that makes it a crime to utter a, quote, harangue or oration or otherwise, quote, loud, threatening or abusive language in the Supreme Court building. Um, So these three women were arrested and charged with breaking that law, as well as another federal law that prohibits demonstrating with the intent of, quote, interfering with the administration of justice. So, yes, definitely some steeper consequences to these types of incidents than, say, you know, bringing a sign out to the uh, sidewalk of the Supreme Court protesting something like affirmative action, uh, which, of course, is protected under the First Amendment. Obviously, this comes just as the court was just welcoming back the public after, you know, having kind of closed down um, its doors uh, during the pandemic. Do you think this changes anything? Do you think this might become more the norm? Well, I mean, it's, I think it's too soon to say these types of incidents are rare, but they're not unprecedented, but they do tend to happen maybe less than you might think. You know, when you think of protests on Capitol Hill, it's pretty much a routine occurrence in Congress, in the halls of, or in some of the hearing rooms in Congress, like for instance, like a Supreme Court confirmation hearing for like, you know, protests one after the other after the other. But, you know, they're, they're pretty fewer and far in between when it comes to actual protests at the Supreme Court. Um, I think the last one took place in 2015. There, a group of uh, protesters were actually denouncing Citizens United on the fifth anniversary of that decision, the big campaign finance ruling. Um, (laughs) Interestingly, they later challenged their convictions in court, and they did win a ruling from a district court that the ban on making these, quote, harangues and orations was, like, unconstitutionally vague. A district judge said, it was basically a very subjective enterprise into what you know that kind of uh, uh, prohibition actually means. But 
they didn't that that victory didn't last very long and the dc circuit reversed that decision on appeal so yes it is still very much illegal to stand up in the middle of a supreme court argument and shout um what the three women in this case shouted which was you know a plea and a slogan to restore our freedom to choose and uh, basically condemning the dobbs ruling in no uncertain terms uh it was kind of interesting you can hear as you were listening to the live feed, a, a, a little bit of the interruption before the kind of the mic cut out and, um, it, you know, it picked back up again uh, just a, a few moments later. Now, of course, when they released the transcript, it only has the little line interruption. It doesn't actually say what the, the protesters said. But interestingly is when they actually re- released the official audio, um, the, the file that is of the of the case after it was submitted, um, they had basically scrubbed it clean of any indication that there were these protests. See, I don't know how I feel about that because I really think that if it happened, it should be on the audio and it should be on the trend. Like, okay, maybe in the transcript, you just leave it as interruption, but I don't know how I feel about scrubbing the audio clean like that. That just seems not as transparent and just, I have an issue with that, I think. Yeah, I, I think the the... the the rationale behind it is to kind of discourage the incentives for protesters. They don't want to give them kind of the platform of the Supreme Court's official audio file to make whatever demonstration that they're attempting to make. But I do agree with you that it's kind of frustrating. Like, for instance, we'd probably be listening to the whole thing right now on this podcast <laughs> if it were, in fact, included in the audio file. But but alas, it's not. Sure, sure. All right. Well, I guess that's an argument for another day. Uh or another future incident, perhaps. Uh, But for now, let's turn to another um, major topic that we often talk about, which is the shadow docket. Uh, Jimmy, we've seen a lot happen this week (laughs) on there. Uh, Do you want to kind of give the rundown? It's crazy. It's like the shadow docket has become the new merits docket. I mean, it almost seems like every other day there's a major uh, emergency appeal being filed Natalie, it feels like every week at this point that we're t- we have to have our dedicated shadow docket sec- section, and this week is definitely no exception to that rule. So I want to talk about four cases, um, shadow docket cases in recent days. The first, probably the biggest one, um, former President Donald Trump is asking the Supreme Court to shield his tax returns from House Democrats. Um, so this is the latest step in the litigation uh, between the House Ways and Means Committee and President, former President Donald Trump over access to his tax filings uh, from the years 2015 to 2020. So below, the D.C. Circuit basically um, rejected a lot of his arguments that uh, the House Ways and Means Committee is attempting to extract his tax returns from the Department of Treasury in order to uncover political dirt um, and basically step on the toes of the executive branch. As a result of that loss in the D.C. Circuit, um, the Treasury Department was basically about to have to give his tax filings over to these House Democrats Uh, on Wednesday before Chief Justice John Roberts stepped in with an administrative stay. Now, I've been talking about administrative stays on the podcast for a few days now, or for a few consecutive episodes now, but basically the key point is this is not a ruling on the merits. It's a temporary administrative holding that just freezes the status quo until the full court can act. So with that in mind... It's a pause, uh, It's right? a pause, right? So yeah. there's been a little bit of confusion um, on the uh, you know social media about this whenever someone like Roberts, or it tends to be a Republican appointee on the court ruling in a case maybe in favor of a Republican litigant, 
that these are the justices are playing favorites or, or maybe tipping their hand on their view of the merits of the case. That is not the case. These things are relatively routine, as we saw in another Shadow Docket case we'll be talking about later, having to do with Justice Kagan. Now, where things stand right now is that the House Ways and Means Committee have been ordered to file a response to Trump's emergency appeal by November 10th at noon, in which they're expected to kind of rehash the arguments that they made in the lower courts, that they are asking for these, they are demanding these um, tax returns for the legitimate legislative purpose of trying to make uh, improvements to basically uh, a presidential audit system that they are working on. So uh, the D.C. Circuit accepted that legislative rationale for this demand. Um, We'll see if the Supreme Court does as well. Now, when I first heard about this case, I kind of got deja vu, thinking it was like related to the case that the court had already remanded back down, but it's not, right? This is like a whole separate case. This is a whole separate case, um, but yes, there are definitely echoes of the 2020 Supreme Court case, uh, Trump versus Mazars, in which uh, a variety of House committees were seeking personal and financial business records from Trump. Now, if you remember that case, it was kind of a a mixed bag in the end. Uh, The Supreme Court, they kicked it back down, as you said, Um, but they did do something very important, which is they established limits on Congress's subpoena authority for the president's personal records. So they said, we're not going to say that this is a completely unconstitutional infringement on the executive's power, but we're going to say, you need to be, you need to have a pretty, pretty good reason for demanding these types of records from a sitting president. Uh, And they established this very strict test that um, future uh, House lawmakers are going to have to meet. Of course, Trump is no longer in office. So the the landscape has changed a little bit in the sense that he's now a private citizen. So how the Supreme Court is going to reconcile Trump's current emergency appeal now that he's no longer in office with their 2020 ruling in Mazars is is interesting. And we'll see. That was case one. Uh, There are four cases. What's the second one you want to chat about, Jimmy? So let me rattle off two real quick, having to do with ongoing election litigation over the 2020 election. Um, you, you get the sense from a lot of these that they're very politically flavored, if you will. So there are a lot of investigations into Trump world, um, the allies surrounding former President Donald Trump, about the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Well, um, one of the subjects of those investigations is Senator Lindsey Graham, who on Tuesday lost his emergency Supreme Court appeal to be shielded from having to appear before a Georgia grand jury about certain phone calls that he had with the state's top voting official after the 2020 election. Does any of this sound familiar to you, Natalie? All too much, yes. <laughs> so if you if you recall, Graham's under scrutiny for um, these calls with uh, Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, in which he allegedly pressured uh, Raffensperger into rejecting mail-in ballots from certain Democratic areas in order to help Trump. Um, basically, the 11th Circuit below said that Graham couldn't claim uh, total immunity from being questioned under the so-called speech or debate clause of the Constitution. That's the part of the Constitution that says, you know, lawmakers can't be questioned for any speech or debate that they make in Congress. That's been interpreted to include a lot of legislative activities. He said, look, I was just looking for any kind of voter irregularities. This was part of my job as a senator. Um, Now, the 11th Circuit said, yeah, okay, you can't be questioned about legitimate legislative activities, but allegations that you were cajoling the Secretary of State to reject mail-in ballots aren't legitimate 
legislative activities. So he appeals to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court denies that um, emergency appeal, basically saying, you know what, the lower courts have put some pretty important limits on the questions that you cannot be asked. For instance, you can't be asked about these legitimate legislative fact-finding inquiries into voting irregularities. But, you know, so if there is any more objections that you have to the questions, you can raise those below. So that was uh, a loss for uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who now has to ostensibly answer some form of questions from a local district attorney investigating uh, the 2020 election down in Georgia. I'll quickly uh, go over the next one. It's from Arizona GOP Chairwoman Kelly Ward. Um, So this is one that has not been resolved yet. It's still pending. But basically, she's asking the Supreme Court to block a subpoena for her phone records that was issued by the House January 6th committee. So the committee had served T-Mobile with a subpoena for her phone records from November 2020 to the end of January 2021, as the committee is obviously investigating her alleged role in the effort to overturn the election results. Um, the, the lawmakers are basically making the argument that Ward, Kelly Ward, used her influence as the head of the state's Republican Party to pressure election officials to interfere with the vote count and convene fake electors that transmitted illegitimate votes to Trump for Congress. So we're going to see um, in the days ahead what happens to that application. Um Now, another note on administrative stays, Justice Kagan actually granted an administrative stay to to Ward, basically blocking T-Mobile from immediately releasing these phone records to the committee. So uh, we're obviously still waiting on the full court to resolve this application. And as you said, this one's pending as the time that we're recording right now, Thursday afternoon, but obviously that can drop at any moment, including before you you guys end up hearing this, uh, listeners. So just uh, a quick note on that. Um, Jimmy, there there was one last big one uh, involving student debt challenge. Uh, do you want to go over that one? Sure. This week, we got another challenge to the Biden student debt plan. Um, another one also being filed on the shadow docket. Uh, I, I don't know if you recall, Natalie, last month, Justice Barrett, she basically denied in a one word order the last challenge to Biden student debt plan that had come from Wisconsin taxpayers. Uh, Now, this one actually is being brought by a potential class of Indiana borrowers that make the argument that, you know, any forgiven debt by the Biden administration is going to injure them by being treated and being taxed as income in Indiana and five other states. So they say that that gives them the legal injury that creates the grounds under which to challenge the legality of Biden's student debt plan. Because remember, the standing issue has been like the key issue in all of these uh, challenges to Mm -hmm. Biden's student debt plan. They have a bit more standing here, but do you think they have a bit more uh, kind of momentum before the court? Well, it's interesting. Uh, obviously, they lost in the in the courts below, which is why they're bringing this emergency appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, the district court rejected this standing argument, saying, "Hey, look, your your beef is with the state of Indiana and its decision to tax this forgiven debt as income, not with the federal government." Um, but just to be safe, I think the Department of Education, which had originally under the plan, automatically 
um, extended its loan forgiveness to like a broad category of borrowers. Um, it created an opt-out process and said, okay, if you don't want this because whatever you're worried about getting stuck with some kind of state income tax bill, then you can opt out through our process, basically creating a further complication for the plaintiffs being able to actually have standing. And that worked at the Seventh Circuit. Um, the, the appeals court once again rejected the idea that they have actually have standing to, to challenge this program. So, you know, there it's a bit of an uphill battle, as we've seen in all of these cases, and we'll see what uh, uh, Justice Barrett does. I mean, we've been talking about administrative stays. I don't even think she put an administrative stay in the last challenge. She just denied it. I think it was like the next day. So mm-hmm. who knows whether we'll get a similar, like, uh, super quick rejection in this case. Um, I should probably point out, though, that the student debt plan, uh, student debt relief plan has been paused across the country, given an administrative state imposed by the Eighth Circuit, because there's, remember, sprawling litigation challenging the student loan forgiveness. And uh, the Eighth Circuit is hearing an appeal by a bunch of Republican states, and they've kind of temporarily put the put the put the um, the program on ice until that appeal can go forward. So uh, yeah, we'll be back with an update in this case whenever it happens. But I think that wraps up our weekly shadow docket section natalie let's get to the actual merits docket um you know you're the you're the access to justice uh go to person in our newsroom maybe i'll say it you're the access to justice ame like how should i phrase i want to credentialize you as someone who like pays close attention to this stuff and i'm wondering like how should i say it i oversee the access to justice newsletter section So that just about does it for our weekly shadow docket section, Natalie. Let's move on to the merits docket, which we've been woefully neglecting for uh, the episode so far. Natalie, you are the editor that oversees Law360's Access to Justice newsletter, so you've been keeping a very close watch on a lot of the big criminal cases at the Supreme Court this term, including our senior Access to Justice reporter, Marco Poggio. But there were some pretty interesting legal questions at issue in the two criminal cases argued Tuesday. Do you want to set those up for us? Definitely. Um, so as you said, pair cases both argued Tuesday. Um, the first one, the Jones v. Hendricks, the justices are considering whether prisoners can seek relief, specifically relief via habeas corpus, when new case law makes them retroactively innocent of their crimes. Um this is a big case for the access to justice community. A lot of folks are watching it. It's an opportunity for the court to clarify how its decisions apply retroactively. Um, lower courts need guidance. They're very split on this. Um, and a ruling in favor of the petitioner here could open the door, frankly, for thousands of people who were convicted for crimes that today may not technically be a crime. That, though, also kind of raises its own problems <laughs> and challenges, I, I should say, for the justices, which was apparent um, during oral arguments. You know, Justice Alito worried, raised concerns about, like, what this might mean for sparking a flood of habeas petitions in district courts um, from federal prisoners and forcing them to kind of analyze these requests um, within habeas law which you know is dense and byzantine to say the least as tuesday's arguments showed i'm always fascinated when justices bring that up you know the idea that this new maybe like change in the criminal law could lead to a flood of new applications because the the idea is basically that that's necessarily a bad thing but in any event (laughs) and and that's actually kind of like 
the key point here, right? Because habeas corpus is meant to be a way of writing a miscarriage of justice, you know, and, and here in particular, that's, a, you know, and, and in particular, that's an important concept. But um, when you start getting into the nitty gritty of it, you know, you also realize that they don't want just everyone being able to file a habeas petition either because that just you never get, then get closure on a case. Natalie, can you tell us a little bit about the facts of this case? So this case involves Marcus D'Angelo Jones, a Missouri man who was sentenced in 2000 to 27 years in prison for possessing a gun as a felon. Now, in 2019, the court ruled that intent is necessary to convict a person under the felon in possession statute. Obviously not in his, his case, but they ruled that you know, you have to have intent. And Jones argues he didn't know that it was illegal to have a gun as a felon at the time that he was arrested and convicted. Um, now, a key technical wrinkle in this case is that under habeas law, specifically the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, that really shapes habeas. Um, it is just about impossible to get a second shot at, at a habeas petition. Um, and Jones had already filed one in before the court in 2019 made him essentially legally innocent, uh, saying that intent was a matter of, you know, a matter to be considered in this type of conviction. Um, because it was a required that, element of the of the crime as later established by the Supreme Court. And exactly. that element was not present when under his conviction, or at least he argued it wasn't. He argues it wasn't, you know, circuits courts at the time were fairly split on this issue. Um, so, he never included it in, as an argument in his habeas petition, um, in his original habeas petition. And there's some, you know, technical question over in the lower courts whether, well, he should have included it. It was his, you know, one chance, but the high court hadn't ruled this, so he didn't really know it was like a big factor. So there's a, a back and forth there, right? Um, now, kind of stepping back, there is a so-called safety valve, right, in habeas corpus laws that allows a new petition, a second petition or successive petition, um, and say claims of factual innocence. But circuit courts have disagreed whether the safety valve is triggered by Supreme Court decisions that retroactively declare certain conduct not criminal. Um, so at the heart of Tuesday's arguments, the justices seem to really grapple with, on one hand, you know, the nitty gritty technicalities of habeas law, which we're not going to get into because it, it could be literally an entire episode mm. on its own. Um, and on the other hand, the kind of broader questions of, you know, what's fair in this situation? Does habeas law offer a meaningful way for someone like Jones to seek relief? Um, or you know, and how do you weigh that against the practicality of the 1996 EDPA law that in part did aim to limit successive challenges and frankly abuses of the writ for um, f for habeas petitions? So it's a tough one. Um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's also a little unclear how the justices are going to really lean on this. We heard a lot from, you know, kind of like the more liberal side of the court um not so much from the conservative side so it's a little hard to tell whether you know they're anyone on that end that might be a little bit more open to you know broadening this safety valve in some way opening it up in in, in some way for for both jones or and or for others who might find themselves in a similar position um it is one like i definitely said the access to justice community is following yeah, that's a really 
That's a really interesting issue. I mean, you're convicted of a crime that the Supreme Court later says you were innocent of, and you try to bring a successive uh, petition for habeas corpus because in your first one, you didn't actually know that you were legally innocent of the crime. And then you are basically, that petition is denied because it is a, because some circuits don't actually grant retroactivity to the Supreme Court decisions when they're considering uh, factual innocence in and, the, the, the habeas review process. And factual innocence there is, is also a very key term, right? Because he may be legally innocent because mm. of this earlier ruling um, requiring intent as part of the conviction. But is he factually innocent is a question that would have to be pursued um, in a new, you know, review by the courts and possibly with new evidence um, because he, it's not an argument that he was in possession of a gun as a felon. It's, you know, it, then this, this, this part of the intent has to be, you know, basically retried. Very interesting. Very kind of thorny case, but a lot of these habeas cases, as you say, can be pretty um, complex. So, uh, let's keep an eye on that one for sure. There was another case, this one, uh, a capital case out of Arizona, uh, Cruz versus Arizona, that was argued on Tuesday involving some interesting legal questions. Natalie, can you set that one up for us? Yes. So um, fair warning, this one's a bit technical, uh, but also could impact the broader pool of those sentenced to death between 1994 and 2016. So bear with me here. Um, and the reason those years are important um, is because in 1994, the Supreme Court ruled that defendants are entitled to inform a jury that they will be given a life sentence and be ineligible for parole if not sentenced to death. So, like, the jury can sentence me to death, but if they don't, the jury also has to know that they won't be eligible for a parole, that they won't be getting out, right? The logic, it's like the logic is basically like, you know, if you were worried about this person getting out and continuing to be a dangerous criminal, don't worry because they're ineligible for parole. Exactly. Right. So in 2016, though, the court in Lynch versus Arizona enforced that earlier decision because it seems like it wasn't always being enforced. Um, and so this case revolves around John Montenegro Cruz, who was sentenced to death in Arizona in 2005 for murdering police officer but asked the state's Supreme Court to review his case in light of the 2016 decision because the jury had not been told that he was ineligible for parole. Um, the lower courts have def declined. The state has essentially argued that, you know, this does not make a significant change in law, the 2016 case, um, and, and it doesn't merit another review. Um, you know, some of the justices, including Justice Barrett, seem to be leaning toward the state on this one. Um, but I do think it was notable that Justice Jackson seemed to be pushing back pretty strongly and particularly was worried that if the court sides with Arizona here, it could give other states a kind of roadmap tacit approval for not reviewing other capital cases that might be brought up to them um, that were originally um, tried and issued between 1994 and 2016. Again, a little bit unclear where this one will land, um, but one that those working with capital cases are watching. Yeah, I listened to this one for a little bit. It was pretty interesting to hear the attorney uh, for Cruz basically get up and say, look, Arizona was not following the Supreme Court's command that defendants are entitled to instruct the jury about their parole ineligibility and that they're now using this like 
significant change in the law criminal rule as a way to deny uh, later claims that that was the case. And so, yeah, it will be interesting to see. And I, I similarly felt like Justice Jackson was like, well, you know, what if a bunch of other states have these criminal procedures that basically, you know, render the, the Supreme Court's constitutional law decisions in capital cases, you know, dead letter. Um, uh, that Yeah, that one was a really interesting one as well. Natalie, um, this has been a fascinating episode. Thank you so much. Yeah, as always, glad to be chatting, uh, Jimmy. And thanks to our listeners. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank uh, reporters Marco Poggio, Sarah Martinson, and Teresa Schlepp. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. If you like this episode, please leave us a review.